Hey everyone, welcome to the Being Giants podcast show. I'm one of your hosts, Rochelle, and on this show, we aim to showcase the many unique stories in academia and paths to careers in various industries. This week, my guest is Charlotte Fagan, who is a lead analyst at National Grid in their leadership development program. Prior to this, she earned both an MBA and a master's degree in urban planning at UCLA, while at the same time interning at Southern California Edison. In the episode, we talk about her transition into the energy industry, her experience in international development, and the time she spent at various nonprofit organizations centered on bicycles. For a list of the organizations that we mentioned in the episode, please check out the episode description. As always, we hope that you guys enjoy the episode. Charlotte, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Uh, this is great. Um, I don't know. Like, you're an intern. I knew you as an intern, and now yeah. you're like doing bigger and better things. So now I have to like catch up to you. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm like really happy that uh, you're doing what you're doing now. Well, we um, were interns together, and then you surpassed me. Um, very quickly, you know, our first conversation, we, we were both still interns and then you told me like, oh, I'm about to go on vacation for two weeks. And when I come back, I'm full-time in my role. And I was like, oh, well, I'll still be an intern when you come back. Oh, that's so funny. You know, I forget that you were, uh, that you, you started off as a summer intern. Like I was thinking that like you were a year round intern that you came in a little later and stuff. That's funny. Well, yeah, that did happen. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You surpassed me. You became, uh, yeah, I stayed an intern the whole time, but, uh, yeah, you went on to bigger and better things. Uh, It's okay. But you, you leveled up significantly. (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) We're both doing great things. (laughs) Uh, thank you so much for doing this with me. I am really excited for this conversation. Um, I know that when I approached you t- to like, you know, do this interview, you were like, oh, I don't know if like, you know, I'm of the same stature of like your previous guests. And I'm just like, listen, like you've done really cool stuff. And I think our listeners will very much enjoy hearing your story. And this will just be really fun for me because you're a great person to talk to. You bring a lot of energy. I've always loved your energy. So I'm really excited. Yeah, no, I'm happy to be here. You know, I might not... Uh... You know, I was I listened to some of the other episodes of people who were, you know, chief of staff at the MacArthur Foundation and people, you know, uh, co-founders of women like black women in engineering and thinking like, okay, you know, I've done some cool things, but maybe not uh, at that level. But I do have stories to tell and I'm happy to share those stories. Exactly. The power is in the stories. It doesn't it doesn't matter where the stories take place. It's, you know, just how powerful the story is. So exactly. All right, cool. Well, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about what you're doing now? Sure. So um, I am a recent graduate from UCLA. I just graduated with uh, dual degrees, one in, uh, I got my MBA from the Anderson School of Management, and I have a master's in urban and regional planning from the Luskin School of Public Affairs. Loved my time at UCLA. Um, very proud Bruin now, which Rachel and I are a little bit cross town rivalries. Uh, her as a USC alum and myself as a UCLA alum now. Um, and I've just, I've just started, uh, in the last, uh, last week, I started a new job, um, where I'm working at National Grid, which is one of the largest utility, uh, companies in the world. I'm in a rotational leadership program. So I'm rotating through different parts of the company for two years. I'm kind of doing an extra two years of training, 
on top of my last three years of training in graduate school, um, rotating through different parts of the company before I exit into a permanent role. Um, and so, you know, this is a time right now where I'm learning a lot of new things, getting acclimated to a new place, but feeling very excited about it. See, as I mentioned, you leveled up significantly. <laughs> <laughs> so you listen to all that stuff, you're just like, oh, I'm doing this and this and this and this and this. Um, but yeah, that, that's that's really awesome. Um, so for reference for people who are listening, uh, me and Charlotte, we work together at Southern California Edison um, within the energy procurement department and stuff. So that's how we, we got to know each other. Um, and now she's like working at National Grid at this other utility company. So one of the things that I was curious about, given the things that I know about you, I, I'm really curious about how your interest in energy even came about. So yeah, how'd that happen? You know, I, I ask myself this question all the time. Um, you know, I believe that a lot of the kind of decisions in my life and different experiences often come from just being in a certain place and around certain people at a certain moment. And that can really kind of take your life in different directions. Uh, you know, I entered my graduate school program you know, initially thinking I was probably going to continue in my career in international development, which is what I had done before graduate school. I thought maybe I was going to go into trash. I'm like really interested in garbage and how we collect it, what we do with it, um, how we create value from trash. Um, that also sort of connects to my career in international development, working with what a lot of people uh, saw as trash in the U.S. and but was still useful and valuable to other people. Um, so I thought I was going to do trash. And then, you know, I kept meeting these energy people and they kept, you know, I kept meeting them. I was like, yeah, these are kind of my people. You know, they're pretty nerdy. They like policy work. They, you know, are really thinking about how to make the world a better place. Um, and, you know, I think in business school, you have a lot of people who are motivated by different things. Um, regardless of sort of what they're doing in their personal life, professionally, they have a lot of different motivations. But to me, I've always been someone who really cares about the impact I'm making on the world and trying to leave this world a better place than I found it. And I found in the energy people, people who really shared that ethos. And so, yeah, slowly but surely, the energy people kind of like brought me in away from trash. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I just feel like we are facing this challenge of climate change and what are we going to do? How are we going to adapt? And that utilities and the energy sector are really right in the middle of all of that. The messy work of how do we put these grand ambitions of getting to net zero? You know, how do you make that happen? How do you make it affordable? How do you make it accessible? How do you try to address kind of these historic inequalities of how we've done this work in the past? Um, and to me, it's kind of all happening in the energy sector. So uh, yeah, I, I got lured away from the world of trash and into the world of, of energy. <laughs> Well, you know, you're right where, um, you know, when you say that, like, utility companies are essentially kind of, like, right in the middle of it when it comes to climate change and stuff. Um, I don't know about you, but for me personally, before I got into the energy space, or at least, like, when I was looking to get some experience within this space, I never really thought utility company, to be honest with you, right? Which is, like, really funny because, like, you know, like, you pay them <laughs> for, for electricity, right? Yeah, but most um, of us never think about it. <laughs> We interact exactly. with them all the time, but we don't even know it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but I feel like, you know, that's definitely something that's not really talked about enough when, um, I guess, people do start talking about climate change and, like, you know, different sources of energy 
and like you know where should we get our energy right like it's always it's always that like okay hey what should we do or do do we do we want to use solar panels do we want to use wind turbines um nuclear yay nuclear no hydro right so it's usually about the you know the sources of energy but not necessarily about how this energy is going to be delivered to individuals but then not only it being delivered but also like how it's being used right yeah so i know that like there are other i guess like careers or like i don't know sectors that like specifically address that problem but i don't know i just feel like that should be a little bit more present in the overall conversation of climate change as a lot of other things should be present but it really should because i feel like it definitely hits closer to home i think it's a lot more tangible it's easier for um for people to understand instead of like oh you know carbon emissions and you know this and this and this you know it's kind of hard especially if you don't have um the uh you know that background that training and stuff but people know people understand their utility bills right yeah they they understand that they have to pay that so exactly and you know a lot of people i think rightfully want to change how we get our energy and for it to come from more renewable sources but they also don't want their utility bill to go up Uh, and there's a trade-off there you know if we need to build a bunch of new stuff new stuff costs money uh and the question to me is sort of well who pays for it who pays for that uh and utilities are caught in the middle of that conversation and i think what makes them also super fascinating places is that they are highly regulated you know the the state government the federal government has a lot of power over how much will customers pay for that who you know how will it be paid you know how much profit can they make and to me as someone who really cares about public accountability to sort of all corporations i like that working at a utility we are so directly you know accountable to the public to the government to our customers i like that sort of we can't you know, a lot of other companies, they don't have as direct accountability to the public. And it makes things often sort of slow and difficult at utilities. But to me, and, and caring about where I work, um, I like that we have that accountability. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I mean, it, it's almost as if you're working in um in a pseudo government environment, right? Yeah. So, so it's, it's really interesting. Um, so going back to, I guess, you saying that, like, you know, you, you were doing this work in trash or at least like you thought you were heading, you know, in that direction. And then you slowly got lured into energy and stuff. Were you kind of set on energy when you decided that, OK, you know, what, I'm going to apply and like go to like business school? And yeah, like, did you did you have that in mind? So I would say energy came after I entered business school. You know, I. Business school, if if you had told, you know, Charlotte Fagan of 10 years ago that she was going to go to business school, 10 years ago, Charlotte would have said, oh, my God, something's gone terribly wrong in my life, that this is the path I've taken. Um, and so, you know, it was a little bit of a, surpri- a surprise to myself, uh, but I'm really glad I did it for a lot of different reasons, uh, you know, some of which I'm sure we'll, we'll get into. But I came into business school... There's sort of a gap in time between when I applied and when I entered. And when I applied to business school, I was already in the urban planning program at UCLA. Uh, So I already knew I was going to at least finish one degree, but I applied to this dual program. And at the time, I still was doing international development work. I thought it was because 
basically I wanted to be the best manager possible when it came to international development work. I Mm -hmm. was talking with a lot of people in the international development field and sort of came to the conclusion, okay, if I don't have a PhD, I'm never going to be the subject matter expert in any given, you know, area. And so I'm always going to be more on the program management side of things, which is actually sort of my preferred area. Um, But I figured, okay, well, if I'm going to do that, and international development is a very competitive field, uh, we can talk more about that. It's very competitive. I figured, okay, well, if I want to do that, then I want to be the best manager possible. And business school is all about teaching you management skills, right? Like it's a school of management. Uh, And so I... Uh, so I said, like, okay, I'm going to be the best manager possible. I'm going to go to business school. And then in the gap of time between when I applied to business school and when I entered, I got a couple fellowships from UCLA to go to Kenya, where I had worked previously, and do some work there. And I, you know, many times throughout my career in international development, I would often kind of step back and really ask myself, what is my role as an American here? Like, wh- what am I doing here? You know, me mm-hmm. as a as a white woman entering these these places, as an American with a lot of privilege. You know, what what's my role? What's my role in the future? And I came out of that experience that summer, really feeling like, okay, there might be a role for me in international development in the future. You know, in ten, twenty years. You know, who knows where where my career might take me? Um, right. But if that's the case, I want it to be because I'm really an expert in something uniquely that I can truly provide value to communities around the world that that people in that country might not have that expertise, right? Um, right. But, you know, right now that's not true. There's plenty, you know, for this example in Kenya, there are plenty of Kenyans who are just as qualified as me to do any of these program management roles, more qualified than me. Uh, and so I had this moment where I thought, okay, how can I make sure that I am, yeah, acquiring experiences and skills that make me the most useful possible. And that's when I really kind of pivoted towards, okay, I want to get some private sector experience that's a little bit different, but in these areas like trash and energy that are services to the public and these, um, you know, essential services, you know, electricity, trash, these are essential services we all need. um, And that that would be a place to build up some skills, maybe eventually going back into either public sector or international development, but with truly was sort of a different level of skill set. Um, and yeah, that's sort of what eventually brought me into energy in a very roundabout way of saying that. Hmm, that's interesting. I, you know, I find it really interesting that also that like you applied, so like your reasonings for applying to business school was because you wanted to be the best manager that you could be. But you're already in a master's program, right? Your, your urban planning program, yes. right? Yes. So you, you don't think that like, I guess in that program, you didn't find that you would have gotten that training that you needed in order to be, you know, this, like, to, to, to get that managerial, like, experience or, like, the skills that you needed to to be that? Yeah, that's a good question. I, there's parts of that where I would have gotten the, those skills from the urban planning program. Um, I think part of it is that there are some skills you get in an MBA that are different, right, of, I didn't know anything about finance or accounting before business school. I could not have read a balance sheet. I could not have told you like why your interest rate really matters, right? Like I just had no idea. Um, Mm -hmm. And there are some fundamental skills with that that are important in terms of managing like big projects, right? If you're managing big projects, big amounts of money, understanding those things are important. And then I'd say the last thing, you know, which I'll say I have mixed feelings about is that there is, 
for better or for worse, society values an MBA to, to signify management experience and management potential in a different way than it values an urban planning degree. And I'm not saying that that's the right thing to, to do, um, but there are certain doors that were opened by getting an MBA that wouldn't have been open without it. You know, even this job that I'm, that I'm starting right now, you know, right, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't that. have gotten that job, um, without getting an MBA. And do I think an MBA is what makes me actually really qualified for this role? Maybe there's, there's parts of it where that's true, but it's not entirely true. But, um, yeah, you know, I think we all sort of decide to a certain extent, sort of when we play the game by the rules that are already established. And when we don't play the game by the rules that are that everyone else is playing by. Um, and I would say I've generally been someone who decided I was going to play by my own rules. But getting an MBA was me saying like, okay, I'm going to play I'm going to play the game for a little while to get me to sort of the places I want to go. And then hopefully later, I'll be in a position of power where I can play by my own rules again. <laughs> in essence, you made a business decision. <laughs> exactly. I made a business decision about it. <laughs> that's, that's funny. Um, while, okay, so I guess when you did, when you entered the urban planning uh, program and stuff, you were still thinking about like, okay, you know what, possibly, you know, future and dealing with trash and st stuff like that. Um, what did you imagine that future would look like? Like, you know, what kind of organizations were you thinking that you could possibly um, find work in? Yeah, so I, when I entered the urban planning program, Thought I was probably going to work with trash. Thought I was probably going to work with trash internationally. That was uh, a little bit the world I had come from. And so that was, that was what I thought I might be doing. And within international development, there's, you know, there's, there's obviously many paths. The path that I, I had started on was working at a small nonprofit, right? So I like worked at a small nonprofit. Uh, I worked at a few different small nonprofits. Um, and that's where what's, great about that experience is you get a lot of responsibility, you get a lot of hands-on, on-the-ground experience. Um, I got to travel a lot, which was amazing. But, you know, I also worked at an organization that, you know, couldn't pay very much and didn't have great benefits. And that was fine in my 20s, but now I'm, you know, was looking towards my future. And so then when you look at kind of the the next level um, of international development up from like the very grassroots, right? Uh, of the places I worked in the past were very much grassroots nonprofit uh, organizations. Then, then you sort of entered the DC world because um, all of international development sort of orbits around, uh, around DC. And within DC, you can sort of split it between, um, you know, there continues to be a lot of nonprofits. They might be a little less grassroots based, they might be a little bit bigger, maybe they subcontract to other smaller nonprofits, but you have these kind of bigger nonprofits. Um, then you also have contractors, some of which are for-profit companies, that they try to win contracts from the US uh, Agency for International Development, USAID, from the World Bank, from the UN. And they basically, they're often referred to as the Beltway Bandits um, because this, there's this uh, sort of like the outer belt of DC. A lot of them have their offices there. I don't totally understand it, but they're called the Beltway Bandits. Um, oh, that's these, funny. I know, uh, the DC world, you know, I've never fully entered it, but I find it fascinating from the outside. Um, so, you know, in those larger nonprofits, in those uh, Beltway Bandit contractor companies, there's a lot of opportunity there. 
Um, they're, you can do a lot of really interesting work. They tend to be at bigger nonprofits, um, you know, better paid than the small, the really small nonprofits, um, and a little bit sort of more of a career trajectory of moving upwards. Um, and then sort of the last pillar of this would be the big, you know, the big agencies, the World Bank, USAID, um, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, MCC, sort of these really big institutions. And those are sort of really the seats of power in the international development world. And so a lot of people who are working at those Beltway Bandit organizations and nonprofits, they kind of tend to move in and out of those big governmental agencies. And there tends to be kind of some rotating between those. Um, you know, the, the government agencies, extremely prestigious to go work there. You know, to get a job at the World Bank, to get a job at USAID, it's really hard. Um, it's hard. There are a lot of really smart, very qualified people. You know, the World Bank has a hiring program, which I agree with, which is, you know, making sure that their employees reflect the world. They're the World Bank. Um, so wanting right. to make sure they have a diverse hiring pool. And when you're an American, it's a little harder to get in there. And that's fine. Like, that's, I, that's how it should be. Um, but sort of that's, that's kind of the world when I entered the urban planning program that I thought I was trying to enter into. Like, I thought I would graduate, I would move to DC, and I would try to kind of maneuver in that world. But what I often find in the nonprofit world is we kind of, um, people really value private sector experience. It's a different, um, different set of skills because the private sector has more resources. They're also able to invest more in their employees. They're able to do more training. You know, I've like never worked somewhere that had an HR department. Now I work at a place that has a huge <laughs> HR department. Like HR departments are important for a lot of reasons. Um, <laughs> like I like having an HR department. Um, and so I really felt like, okay, if I can go get some private sector experience, I think it would be good for my, like my own professional development. And even if I end up in the long term, and especially if you look at kind of top people at the World Bank, top people at USAID, um, you know, these people going into to higher up uh, federal government positions, they often have a lot of private sector experience. Uh, and so mm -hmm. that was um, that was a big part of it, too, is feeling like, OK, eventually I, I do want to be back on the public or nonprofit side in some in some way. And who, who knows when that will be. But I think I will be a better, you know, a better candidate and just will have a, a more diverse set of experiences from having some private sector experience. Okay. Now I'm not even sure if I if I answered your question or if I just took it a different direction, but I figured no, we'll, no, we'll no. figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think uh, I think you gave me a really uh, very clear picture. So thank you. Um, I will say, yeah, no, to to kind of like piggyback off of like what you like, I guess getting private sector experience, right? Like being in the private like private sector, there's just they they're incentivized, right? So because they are, you know, they're, they kind of have, they have bigger reach, you know, there, there isn't, you know, someone who is like watching them saying like, you definitely cannot do this. I mean, like to a certain degree, right. But like, you know, to a certain degree, they're, they're regulated and stuff, but for the most part, you know, they have that room to be, you know, innovative or at least to like, you know, think about certain things, um, in a way that I guess you wouldn't be able to do so in a government, uh, organization and stuff yeah. so it's always good to kind of I guess like balance that out too so I mean at least like for me my I guess the what I would have to compare to that is like being in academia versus not being in academia right so being in academia versus being in the private sector and academia it's it's really interesting right because it's it's 
it's a little bit more open-ended there there's a culture it's like it's very bubble-ish it's very much its own world um and then when you kind of get into the private sector in a way yes things can be slow but then at the same time it's fast you know like i think that's something that i've been struggling with a little bit i wouldn't say struggle but more i guess i'm being i'm, I'm becoming a little bit more aware of that right because like in my work with edison there are times where i get frustrated where i'm like oh man like i feel like i've been working on this forever but then at the same time it's just like things happen like this which is like it's it's the strangest thing so being in that environment getting that experience definitely definitely can see how like you know it, it only makes you a better person no matter like if you do end up you know going into like you know the nonprofit world or like you know switching over to another organization it's always good to kind of like be well-rounded like that absolutely and i think it's it gives a whole another way of thinking about approaching problems um right you know like we have customers and if we do something customers don't like they tell us uh right. whereas Nonprofit, that relationship is different because with nonprofits, you're fundraising money from either individuals or foundations who, who give your organization money, but those aren't the same people and you're accountable to them, but they're not the people you serve, right? You serve your constituents, you serve, you know, whichever programs you're running, um, you know, that's, th those are the people you serve, but they're not always the people you're accountable to. Whereas in the private sector, you know, sure, you have a board of directors, you're accountable to them. If you're a publicly traded company, you have shareholders, you're accountable to them. But you're much more directly uh, accountable to your customers and serving them. Uh, and you also just get feedback so much faster, right? Like, right. <laughs> uh, And I think that there's a lot of ways that that opens up new ways to problem solve. Um, and yeah, to experiment, try new things that just take longer and it's a little bit harder um, in the nonprofit and public world. No, definitely agree. Now, speaking of your nonprofit uh, experience, I'm, I wanna get into that. So you've worked at a number of like nonprofit organizations and stuff. And from what I know, like specifically, you're doing a lot of work associated with bicycles. So. Yes. That's really interesting to me because like we just sat down and we just talked about, you know, how like you thought that, you know, you would get into possibly get into trash and now like you're kind of like in the energy space, but you were doing all this work regarding bicycles. So tell me a little bit about that. Like, you know, how did you get into that space? Why bicycles? Um, yeah, like I'm yeah. curious. You know, I myself am still kind of unraveling, uh, unraveling this story of how, how I got there. So, you know, I'll take you back to 2008. Um, I was a, uh, or I guess 2007. I was a freshman in college at McAllister College in Minnesota. And the Twin Cities are a vibrant biking city. You know, there is amazing bike infrastructure and just so many people biking, a lot of really interesting stuff going on with bike culture. At that time, it was 2007, 2008, it was like the height of people riding fixed gears around and racing in alley cats. Um, and I was an impressionable, an impressionable young uh, student in college. And um, yeah, I'm really, I'm really bringing it all the way back. Um, <laughs> I was an impressionable freshman. And I just thought that especially the women involved with the, um, the bike club on campus, that they were just the coolest. Um, and at the same time, I was, uh, I was a geography urban studies major. I was reading all of these, you know, kind of heavy theorists 
who, many of whom actually were uh, at UCLA's urban planning department, kind of part of this sort of, so bringing it back to, to sort of what took me to UCLA urban planning, um, writing about public space and how public space is kind of foundational to democracy um, and people, the public being able to go out and express their views and having these places that didn't require people to to buy something to be there, right? You can just go to right. a park, uh, something we're all now very familiar with in the pandemic, but pre-pandemic, <laughs> we weren't appreciative enough of parks um, <laughs> and the role they play in our society. Um, right. And so I started, you know, I, so I was, I was influenced by studying geography, influenced by these women uh, who were running this really cool bike co-op on campus and really thinking a lot about, about what it meant to be a young woman uh, riding around my bike on the streets and how I like individually felt so empowered and independent. And, um, yeah, I just felt amazing riding my bike around the twin cities. And, uh, you know, and to me at the time I was connecting it to this kind of like wider discourse about democracy. Um, and so I just kind of dove headfirst into bikes. I was really into it. Um, and I was, so into bikes that um, I actually uh, dropped out of not dropped out of college, but I took a break really? from I I took a break from really? uh, yeah I don't think we've ever talked about this no <laughs> uh, yeah I think dropped out is a strong word I uh, took some time <laughs> off uh, I always knew I was going back um, I I knew that I wanted to get some more experience abroad I wanted mm -hmm. to do something with bicycles. I wanted to spend a full year studying abroad, which wasn't really an option that I had um, because I really wanted to become fully fluent in Spanish. I had studied abroad in high school for a semester. Um, so my Spanish was good. I studied abroad in Spain, gone to like Spanish public high school there. Um, but I wanted to become fully fluent. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to take a year off from college. And I'm going to move somewhere and I'm going to do something with bikes. That was as right. specific as I thought at the time. Um, okay. <laughs> and so I found, I got connected to this alum who she was running a program teaching women how to ride bikes in Quito, Ecuador. And mm -hmm. I said, great, can I come be your intern? And she said, sure, come on down. And so I took some time off from school. I moved to Quito. I did not know anybody. I, you know, I, yeah, I totally moved there. Not... Now I look back on it and really think, you know, what were you thinking? You just moved <laughs> to a country you'd never been to before, kind of on a whim. Um, and about a week or two before I got there, the person who I was supposed to intern with, she left the country. Um, so really kind of threw into like, oh, yeah, wow. it became a real question mark of what was even going to happen. So I moved down. Uh, I, I ended up still earned, interning with that program, teaching women how to ride bikes. It was... Uh, yeah, one of, I mean, yeah, this, it was with a, found, uh, with a nonprofit in Quito. This became a really foundational experience in my life. Um, between working for that nonprofit, I also sort of apprenticed myself as a bike mechanic at a bike shop that I kind of randomly walked into one day. Um, and then later I founded a different women's nonprofit, women's bicycle nonprofit in Quito. Um, that had a little bit of a different uh, angle and different audience than the place that I had been working. Um, and that is sort of what started me on this on this roller coaster of international development with bicycles, especially focused on women. It really just came from how much I loved riding a bike. And I wanted to meet other women who felt similarly empowered and independent and who sort of really 
connected to that feeling and I wanted to meet them. And so I went all around the world trying to meet them. And yeah, that's sort of what got it all started. Oh my goodness. That is like, that's amazing. <laughs> like you don't really, I mean, like, you know, oftentimes, I mean, there obviously, you know, there's a lot of people out there, you know, who will just like randomly just, you know, say like, you know what, forget this capitalistic society. I'm just going to go do something entirely different, right? Like just, yeah. just going to go do something different. But at the same time, like, you know, I have a tremendous amount of respect for people who can do that, especially because for me, I think I'm now slowly getting into the, you know, into that space where it's more like, okay, like I've played by these, you know, I've played by the rules, you know, for, for a good bit. Now now I kind of just want to, you know, break away to like go do stuff just because I feel like that will just be so much more rewarding than just like being in this system where you're like, you know, playing by a set of rules and stuff. But my, my question for you is, so, so at first, you know, when you started getting into bikes, right, like while you were in college and stuff, you know, you, you said that you, like doing so kind of like, you connected it to like the, to like the idea of like democracy and stuff like that. So when you went abroad to like continue this work, were you still like thinking along the same lines or did your motivations, you know, kind of, you know, kind of changed a little bit, um, over time and stuff like, you know, how did the nature of that work change for you? How did, I guess, how you thought about it? Did it, that change? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And is, was definitely the case for me. You know, I think, I think for a while at the beginning of my international bike work, I, yeah, I wanted to meet women who basically felt the same way I did, but it also meant that I was framing the people I was meeting in my discourse, right? Like I was kind of imposing my framework of how I thought about biking and connecting it to democracy and these, and these things Mm. and kind of assuming that anyone else who was doing this felt the same way. Um, Ends up that's not true. You know, people have their own reasons for riding bikes and, and maybe it's not a good thing, right? Like maybe for some people it's actually a bad thing, or it means that they don't have the means for another form of transportation, or maybe it's putting them at risk and maybe it's not powerful for them. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I think at the beginning, yeah, I, I was young. I was, um, you know, I think, I think I was, yeah, really imposing my framework on other people. And that really changed for me. Um, a few years later. So basically, Mm -hmm. so I took some time off from college, moved to Quito. I was there for about a year, year and a half. Uh, For the next two years, as I went back to college to finish up my degree, I was going back and forth between Quito a lot to help run this organization. Um, Mm -hmm. And then when I graduated from college, I received what's called a Watson Fellowship. Uh, And a Watson Fellowship is the best job in the world. Where basically they, you know, they give you a grant, they write you a check and they say, see you in a year. You know, do, do it, do you, we'll see you in a year. Please write us a two page letter every three months to just let us know what you're doing. Wait, like, like about anything? About anything. They, you know, their, their motto is that they, they invest in, or um, something, the phrase is something like, we invest in uh, potential leaders and encourage them to spend a year of solo travel to better understand themselves and what they believe in. 
And it's they and and they will tell you this. It's very much about investing in you as a person and a and a potential leader and sort of your potential. And they uh yeah, they're really not focused on your project. They kind of don't really care what you do. They just wow. They say, you know, solo travel, you can't travel with another person. Um, mm-hmm. You're not even really, you can see family and friends throughout the trip, but they really encourage you for it to not be more than sort of a few days at the time. It's really okay. meant for you to experience this as a solo traveler. Um, mm-hmm. I think someone else, uh, a Watson fellow who had been a few years above me, she once described it to me as, it's uh, a year for you to learn um, your gut instincts and to trust your gut instincts and to really get to know yourself really well. Because when you are traveling alone through, and then you have to go to a minimum of three countries. So you have to travel for the full year. You can't return to the U.S. Um, but other than that, there's really not that many rules. Wow. Okay. I didn't even know stuff like that exists. Yeah, it's okay, it's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, for any undergraduates who are at a Watson school uh, and they have you know their list on their website, highly encourage you to apply. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, so I, I got one of these fellowships to study women's bicycle culture in five countries mm-hmm. around the world. I went to China, Indonesia, Sierra Leone, Germany, and Guatemala. Oh, okay. Um, and in this journey and this time, I really started to think about women biking differently, right? I had gone from this, you know, biking is great. I feel so empowered to thinking about it differently, right? Like women riding bikes in China, it's not necessarily about trying to make a statement in public space about democracy. It's because mm-hmm. biking is uh, you know, an easy way to get around. Um, right. And it's a little bit different, you know, in Indonesia, um, as the largest Muslim majority country in the world, it's also a little bit different. Um, and going to Sierra Leone was really when things started to change for me of seeing rather than seeing bicycles as a form of personal empowerment, really thinking about it more as a form of economic empowerment. Um, and so mm-hmm. for people, so in Sierra Leone was also the first time in my entire life that I lived in a really rural area. You know, I basically had lived in suburbs or a city my my entire life and, and everywhere else I had traveled um, and lived up to that point had basically been in a city. Uh, but in Sierra Leone, I was in this very rural kind of mining town and people use their bikes really differently there. Right. It's again, it's like not about being in the public space and voicing your concerns and, and stuff like that. It's about getting from your even further out village and being able to make it to the market with your goods, you know, or if you walk five miles to school and you get a bike, all of a sudden you go to a school a lot more um, and you show up on time and, you know, all those sorts of things. And so that, that experience in Sierra Leone, um, I was volunteering with an organization called the village bicycle project that I'm now their board president. um, and still very involved with their work. Uh, That really changed for me how I started to think about bikes and much more towards you know, there's a lot of poverty in the world and a lot of people where a bike can make a very material difference in their life um, and their access to opportunity. Wow, that's so crazy. Because, like, it, it's it's blowing my mind, like, you know, hearing you talk about, like, you know, how, you know, bikes are used differently, you know, depending on where you are in the world. And I was just thinking about my experience, like, it's a toy, <laughs> at least for yeah. me anyways, right? Totally. You know, it's a toy or, like, something that you use to, like, uh get exercise right yeah um but 
Yeah, no, I guess I never really thought about it, you know, that deeply and stuff. But it, it makes sense, right? It, it's not, you know, just bikes that are like, you know, that we think about them differently, you know, here and, you know, they're thought about or used about, you know, differently um, elsewhere. There's, there's a whole bunch of resources like that. Wow, that's that's mind boggling to me. Um, how did you, so the countries that you ended up visiting, right? How did you decide which uh, of them to go to? You know, that was a combination of chance and Googling, really. Um, you know, <laughs> I, that was, uh, I, I, my advisor in undergrad, um, Dan Trudeau, who I'm, I still keep in contact with. He was, um, you know, a really fantastic advisor. One of his pieces of advice had been, you know, Charlotte, basically don't, don't go back to South America. Like you're comfortable in South America. You've done a lot of work there. You know, people there use this year as a time to really push yourself and go to a lot of places that are different and new to you. And so for me, that meant spending time in Africa and Asia where I had never been before. Uh, and that was really crucial for me, changing my perception of what it meant to bike. You know, I think it would have been very easy for me to spend time in North America, the cities of South America. It would have been very different if I had gone to rural areas and Europe and sort of continue to think about biking the same way. But if I really wanted to push myself, it meant going somewhere else. So, you know, I, my brother, my brother's um, now wife had spent some time in Beijing with this bike shop that she put me in contact with and said, I bet you can sort of use that bike shop as a launching off part point. So I went there. Um, I had some other connections in Indonesia. Uh, so that was another spot. I'd found Village Bicycle Project through a Google search. So went there. Um, I ended up in Germany, honestly, because there was a bike polo tournament happening there. And I wanted to go to Europe for a couple months to see what biking was like there to go to a place where bike infrastructure is amazing. And so many people bike everywhere. Um, so I went to Berlin for a bike polo tournament and basically said, okay, whoever I meet, who's really cool, I'll just follow them back to wherever they live. Um, and I decided that the people in Berlin were the coolest. So I just stayed there. Um, and then, yeah, through some, some other Googling found this, uh, incredible person in Guatemala named Carlos Martoquim, uh, who I'm still quite close with making pedal powered machines for indigenous women in rural Guatemala to do agricultural work. So things like a pedal powered water pump or a pedal powered um, corn degrainer uh, and things like that and who's making them out of recycled bikes. So it was really chance, yeah, chance and internet searches, which is how so much of life is decided these days. That's so crazy. Like, this is really blowing my mind. So like all, all of this from like being an impressionable, like freshman in yes, college. Yes, exactly. You know, yeah, you read... You read Lefebvre too early and you just, that combination of reading, uh, yeah, reading this article about the socio-spatial dialectic, that in combination <laughs> with meeting these women who are just really cool and they were, you know, fixing people's bikes and leading these cool bike rides around the city and really like those two things together set me off on this life path. Um, that's know, how it happens. That's crazy though. But, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a lesson in that right where it's like you know give something your all in a way or like you know try to follow something through and just to see like you know where where it'll take you as opposed to just like okay scratching at the surface of you know this thing you know for a little bit and then doing so you know and another thing which there's no there's no like issues with that whatsoever right because you know at least you're getting your feet wet a little bit but 
you you truly do get to know something right the the further you allow yourself to kind of just like deep you know dig deeply into it so that's crazy like i don't think i'm thinking about my life right now and i'm not sure if i have anything that i have like remote like not even i'm just thinking like you know what have i done you know somewhat deeply like have like gone into outside of school maybe but like i feel like that doesn't count I think school counts because not everyone's into school, you know, Um, and some people that's where they really deep dive. Um, I did a deep dive on bikes. Uh, I was I was in the bike world. Um, In fact, when I moved to L.A. uh, for grad school, one of the things that I often think about myself, I don't know if you think about yourself this way between sort of L.A. and Florida is we can we're sometimes kind of different people in different places. Right. Oh, yes. Like Most definitely. <laughs> L.A. Charlotte is different than Boston Charlotte, who's different than Quito Charlotte. You know, each Charlotte in each place is a little bit different. I like that. Right. I think it you know, I think it's also about embracing the place where you are and yeah, and sort of being flexible with that. Uh, but when I moved to L.A., I told myself, I was like, L.A. Charlotte is not is going to be into bikes, but not as into bikes <laughs> you know i think i by the time i left boston um and was entering grad school i i wanted to tell people like i'm more than just bikes you know i think anyone in boston and it's still true having just moved back here you know if you t- tell anybody in boston who knows me sort of my name the first thing they're gonna say is like oh charlotte bikes like that's <laughs> that's the direct correlation um which and that's, there are much worse things to be correlated with than bikes. Um, but I wanted to tell people like, I'm more, I'm more than just that. And I think I was starting to, in my international development work, um, yeah, after this fellowship year, I moved to Boston and was working at a nonprofit here called Bikes Not Bombs. Uh, I was the international programs director collecting used bikes in the New England area and shipping them to our social enterprise partners in Latin America and Africa hence the trash, uh, trash connection. Um, but you know, I, I saw a lot of problems in the world that were just, that were bigger than what bikes could solve, right? Like Mm -hmm. I saw climate change happening and really felt like, okay, bikes is a, bikes are a part of that solution, right? Like sustainable transportation is a part of that solution, but it felt like the moment called for something bigger than that. And so I moved to LA and I succeeded in not just being a bike person. I also became an energy person and a taco person and, you know, other things. And that's, that's a good thing to diversify, you know? Well, you know, from a safety perspective, I'm happy that you uh, didn't, you know, you're just a bike person (laughs) because I mean, I was, I had a bike during my time as an undergrad at USC and like, I would just like back, back and forth like you know between campus and like my apartment and stuff and then like after a little while I was just like you know what I'm just not I just don't feel safe (laughs) I don't feel safe like yeah I'm just gonna I'm just gonna walk I'm just gonna walk like 30 minutes like one way each every day every day I have to go to campus like I'm just gonna have to deal with that so that's that's crazy to me Um, yeah (laughs) (laughs) Uh, LA not the best place for biking great for biking outside the city in the city not Mm. the best not the yeah, best. It's possible. It's definitely possible. Lots of people do it. Um, but it's nice being back in Boston. Boston's a very, uh, Boston's a pretty good place to bike. Yeah, no, I, I hear, I hear like pretty good with like public transportation in general, right? Mm-hmm. Just like, it's very inter- interesting how like cities, spaces, right? How like the thought that is put into 
building an optimal space. Like there are things I'm just like, these are things I never really would <laughs> think about <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, I just, I wanted to kind of, uh, piggyback off of, um, one thing that you mentioned was that like, you, you know, you had this like advisor, uh, during undergrad and stuff. So obviously you've done in a, a large amount of things and like, you know, have traveled all over the place and stuff. So I kind of wanted to know, like, you know, did you have access to like mentors and stuff like that to kind of just like help inform some of these decisions that um, you ended up making? Or was it more like, okay, you know what, I'm kind of interested in this and I am going to figure out how to make this happen <laughs> no matter <laughs> what it takes. So, yeah, um, like, yeah, you know, a little bit of a combination. I think uh, I'm a fairly independent person who's kind of willing to take my own path places. And so, for example, taking time off from college, I don't think any of my mentors and especially my parents at the time were thought that that was maybe <laughs> the best idea. Um, but I was, but I was determined to do it. So I did. Um, but you know, yeah, I've had a number of mentors, advisors, friends who have been really influential. So Dan Trudeau, my undergrad advisor, um, he's in the geography department. Uh, he was so supportive and generous with his time. I mean, he's still generous with his time with me. We still talk on the phone, you know, a couple times a year. Um, and he, I think he was, I think what I appreciated about him and I think in any good mentor is someone who, you know, they, they have some advice and they kind of have a vision for where they think you should go, but mm -hmm. that they don't, and they offer you that advice, right? They'll sort of say, hey, I think maybe you should pursue this path, but mm -hmm. they're willing to be flexible when you say that's not my path, right? And they, they listen to that. Um, and so he, yeah, was incredibly supportive, really, like, you know, helped me with writing recommendation letters and nominating me for things and, and helped open a lot of doors for me, um, especially mm -hmm. for this fellowship. And I will forever be really, really grateful um, to him. And then another person who comes to mind, or sort of a few other people come to mind, one, um, this person, uh, Lo Kling, who uh, is one of the main organizers of this uh, bike collective for trans femme and women cyclists in the Minneapolis area called Grease Rag. And they taught me so much about what it meant to be a community organizer and how to convene space with people and make connections and build community. And those are skills I use every day that Lo taught me. Uh, and they are an incredible organizer and community leader. And I think I learned a lot from them about, especially in international development, where it is so important to listen. Right? Like mm -hmm. you're coming in as an outsider, you're you anytime you go someplace new, you sit there for a while and you just listen to people and you listen to what they want to tell you, you listen to what they're not telling you. And that is a huge part of, um, you know, doing that kind of community work. Uh, and then when it came to starting to think about grad school, I had a few mentors uh, in the Boston area who were not in bikes. And I think that's another thing that I think is really important when it comes to mentorship is finding people who are outside of your specific niche. You know, the international mm -hmm. development bike world is pretty small, you know, like yeah. I know literally all of them. Okay. Maybe not <laughs> all of them, but almost all of them. Uh, and so I think if I was so focused on uh, finding a mentor within that community, that would have been pretty limiting. Instead, I was 
you know, reaching out to people outside of that. And, and a lot of them were helpful when I was thinking through kind of the next steps of my career. Um, and then I guess I'll lastly give a plug for my sister-in-law, Jenny, who just finished her PhD at uh, Berkeley. She's about to start a position at the Spencer Foundation and Mm -hmm. someone who knew, who knew how grad school worked, right? Like she knew how the process worked of, okay, you email the professors in the fall and you say you're interested in applying. You give them a little pitch. You hope they, they hope, you hope that they remember your email. They probably won't. You then, you know, write your personal statement. You apply. When you get accepted, you can negotiate your offers and try to get more money. And, you know, having someone who had been through that process and was really candid and open about the ways the system worked was so helpful to me um, as someone who who didn't know that much about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh man, well, there's a good lesson in that as well, where it's like, you know, don't be afraid to ask for help, right? Like it, it's yes. always important to kind of just like align, align yourself with like people who can get you to where you need to be because you can't figure, every, you don't have the answers, right? <laughs> like no, no one is, no one is born with the, uh, with the answers. Um, man, what a whole complete experience you've had. I mean, I feel like your, your 20s are just a really interesting time. And to be honest with you, like, I'm really curious to know where you'll, you know, what you'll end up doing, I don't know, maybe five, 10 years down the line and stuff. Just because, like, I mean, look at the body of work that's like, you know, led you to um, here and stuff um i don't know we're, we're just gonna have to stay in contact I mean, i'm pretty sure we <laughs> oh, are so <laughs> oh definitely <We're> <laughs> uh, yeah no we're friends we we made the we made the crossover from being like work uh, acquaintances to friends um especially i feel like i'm just gonna briefly tell this story on this podcast but maybe we'll get cut is that so <laughs> Uh, when I started working at Edison, where Rochelle and I worked together, um, right, I started remote. We had only ever interacted <laughs> online. Um, and even at that time, like, maybe with video on twice. Maybe. Yeah, you may probably. <laughs> you know, like, very rarely with video on, but we were collaborating very closely on this project. And, you know, like, we were working on the project, but we were also connecting as human beings and outside of work. Um, and I feel like we... We both knew that we wanted to be friends. And then in my last week in LA, we got lunch together and uh, it was the first time we had met in person. And I walked out of that meeting. I was like, yeah, she's as cool as I thought she Like, yeah, we're friends now. Like I, I knew that that was gonna happen, but we needed that kind of in-person moment to solidify yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I remember walking in and I was like, this is, and it wasn't even awkward at all. Cause I was like, no, we're cool, we're friends. Crazy, yeah, crazy how that works, right? And yeah, exactly. I definitely had the same thoughts about you. So <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad we did this and I'm glad we definitely same. had lunch. <laughs> definitely. Um, well, with that being said, I think this is a pretty good spot to leave it. Um, Great. Thank you again so much for doing this. It's been really cool for me. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's it for us this week. We hope that you guys enjoyed the episode please be sure to follow us on our social media pages for any of our latest updates. Until next time.